Hi, and welcome to this latest episode of Sepad Pod, the sectarianism, proxies, and desectarianization podcast based at Lancaster University. I'm Simon Maybon, and today I'm joined by Sana Al Sakhali. Sana is Assistant Professor of Constitutional Law and the Director of the Constitutional Studies Center at An Najjar University in Palestine. But that introduction doesn't really do justice to everything that Sana is doing uh, in her in her role as an academic, but also in her role as an academic who engages with both the Palestinian. Uh, intellectual community, um, constitutional studies, but also gender um, and law and politics in Palestine more broadly. Sana is the first uh, female constitutional law PhD holder in Palestine. I was lucky enough to examine her her PhD thesis, which was absolutely fascinating. And she's been doing some really important work, not only with regard to constitutions, but also with regard to sectarianism, sectarian politics, and desectarianization. So I'm really delighted that Sana has been able to join us today. Thank you so much, Sana. Thank you, Simon, for this uh, lovely introduction. And I'm also, uh, you know, I had the pleasure of having you as my internal examiner and also as my mentor uh, for the past uh, few years. And congratulations on being a professor. It's uh, well deserved. Thank you, Sana. You're very kind. So moving back to you, um, which I think is far more important and indeed interesting, I have to ask, what was it that that piqued your interest in in constitutional law as a, as a Palestinian from Nablus? Of all the things that you could have gone into, all the different disciplines, all the different career paths, why did you think that academia and constitutional law was the way to go? Well, uh, I think it started when I uh, chose to do law in Palestine at Najah University. And for me, it was quite uh, interesting because, you know, usually uh, students who do scientific stream in their high schools, they don't choose to uh, study humanities. So when I finished, I wanted to do something different because I didn't want to go to the classic uh, disciplines. Usually when you finish scientific stream, you go uh, for, let's say, uh, medicine or pharmacy. And all my family are pharmacists, so that was, the, you know, like the clear path to go. But sure. since, yeah, but since an, an early age, um, I was involved in, uh, you know, uh, non-academic activities and uh, uh, kind of like writing uh, certain uh, short stories and publish them, uh, you know, with the, with the newspapers in Palestine. So I always had this kind of like. Uh, how to say, ambition to be more involved with the people and to, to be closer to them. So when I finished, I decided to go to the law school. And uh, after finishing uh, four years and graduating uh, from the law school, I had an amazing dean, and I have to say, uh, he approached me because I graduated top of my class. And he said, we would like to invest in you. And I always had the dream to go to UK and study in the UK. Uh, so it was the first time that Najah University wanted to, to give a scholarship uh, for the top students in all uh, faculties. So my dean said, if you want to do, uh, if you want to proceed uh, your postgraduate studies, there is one discipline that is missing in Palestine, or we have shortage in it, which is constitutional law. And to be honest, it's the only discipline that I didn't like as an undergrad. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was, it's kind of like, you know, constitutional law is very abstract for undergrads. And especially in a place like Palestine with all, uh, you know, the problems, the political instability, it was never really taught in a way that 
makes it closer or showing how important it is. So I was like, okay, at least I have one year when I'm doing my master's that I don't have to deal really with constitutional law because uh, the LLM program that uh, I enrolled to was providing general law, um, you know, modules. But when I was approaching to to finish um, my master's, I wanted to write a thesis about freedom of expression in emerging states such as Palestine. And I always wanted to do not really the constitutional law, but media law. So again, I had this conversation with my dean at the time, and he said, well, think bigger, because you can, if you do constitutional law, you can touch on all the other aspects of law. And this is what I did, actually. I went and I studied in the library in Durham after, you know, like, it was quite bizarre, because that was really the first time I got really introduced to constitutional law. And I started liking it, because I thought I never really understood it as an undergrad. And, um, you know, my university, uh, Najah, signed an agreement with Lancaster University uh, for a PhD um, scholarship, and I applied. But I applied after, of course, and I took like a kind of like a one semester, I came back, I taught after my master, and I thought of what kind of thesis I want to write. And uh, I went to uh, the Legislative Council um, archive, um, you know, I, I studied uh, what issues we have in Palestine. And then uh, I wrote my proposal, and I went to Lancaster. And I have to say, it was quite difficult because the first year of my PhD, Simon, I had to read everything about Oslo Agreement, you know, all these things that we're not really taught as law students here. Sure, yeah. So, and every time I read about it, I've realized how important to, for us to know these things as Palestinians, how important to, to come back and give my students the experience that I never had. And slowly, slowly it grew on me and I started enjoying it. And luckily when I was in Lancaster in my second year, I had the pleasure of meeting you and also being introduced to, you know, um, the other discipline, which is like political science and how also it can be like uh, the path between constitutional law and political science are very related. So these things also about interdisciplinary, these things are very interesting. And I also wanted to know about them so I can come back and teach my students. And also, hopefully one day, I can be part of drafting a Palestinian constitution. So a, a lofty ambition there. And I'm sure it's one that you will, you will reach in the, in the not-too-distant future. But, Sana, just, just tell us a little bit about why, why scholars and, uh, and academics working in politics, political science, Middle East studies should pay more attention to, to constitutional law? Because you've, you've rightly said that there's a, a great deal of crossover between the two, but it strikes me that there's not enough attention paid to constitutional law within political science more broadly. So what is it that, that we need to do? Why, what can constitutional law bring to the study of politics and, and vice versa? Well, I really think that constitutional documents... Like, they are political, well, to start with, they are political documents, yeah. you know? They, they shape the political system. They show the form of government. And all the interaction between the branches of the government, especially if you have a system where you have a prime minister and a president and they both enjoy powers, it's kind of political interaction. So I think 
this is why it's super important because politics, you know, you can have like uh, articles within the constitution, they can be very well written, but the way they are working in practice, they rely a lot on politics and how the interaction between, you know, like uh, the governors, the governments, they work together. So I really think it would be amazing if we have more research that comes from uh, different disciplines. And I, I have to mention, there are like certain work, like some work that I really enjoyed reading as uh, as a post-grad. And I was lucky enough to also continue um, interacting with uh, such scholars that uh, they focused on constitutions, but from political uh, science point of view, like uh, Nathan Brown and others, they wrote very kind of like, how to say, uh, they, they wrote about constitutions from a political science point of view. And that was very useful for me as a constitutional lawyer. Because when you talk to constitutional lawyers, they always look at the text, the interpretation yeah. and all. But sometimes it's way beyond this. Um, and I have to say, in Palestine, um, we do have a lot of, of like, either you have a strict uh, constitutional law analysis or you have a strict political science analysis. And I think the, the interaction between the two is very, very relevant and important to the current situation or what's going on, especially during the state of emergency now um, in, in Palestine. And um, just referring to one of the things is, is that why it's also very important to do it by a female. And I have to highlight this because they... Most of the constitutional work that is done in Palestine in particular are done by male scholars, Palestinian male scholars. So to have also female um, scholar talking about uh, the interdisciplinary or like how politics can cross with constitution is also for me, it's very interesting because this shows that women can also have a say in this kind of like, how to say, serious uh, conversations and not only be limited to um, the, you know, the discussions about women's rights and all. Because I think also women's rights, they are very connected to the political system it apply, that, that you have in any country. And I think this is a new also area that has to be um, approached and crossed, Simon. Yeah, I completely agree. On that point, could you tell us a little bit about the work you've been doing with with local organizations in that front then? Uh, I know you do some work with TAM, uh, Women, yeah. Media and Development Organization, an NGO based in based in Nablus? No, it's based in Bethlehem, but we, we work in all over Palestine. Okay. Um, so basically I worked with TAM when I was 18 years old. I used to present uh, for them like a TV show called TAM Time. So we need to add TV star to your, uh, to your resume then? <laughs> TV presenter. I think I, I worked with them uh, because I always liked uh, these things. And I took uh, many trainings with Interim News uh, that they used to be based in, in Palestine. And I went uh, to Oxford for the media policy program with them. Um, so at that time, Tam Time was a talk show that was, um, uh, you know, uh, produced by different uh, TV local stations. And it used to be uh, screened on the Palestinian national TV every Sunday. Um, basically, during my work with Tam, as a young girl, I've realized that my home, which is a safe home, a great home, very open-minded home, is not every home. 
so there are issues uh, that I don't know about, and uh, they touch uh, other like uh, girls my age, uh, older, younger. So these things start uh, interesting me, and. Um, uh, when I came back from UK, uh, they had a change in the administrative or the board of directors, and they asked me if I want to run for it. And uh, yeah, I had to do a presentation in front of them, and we had to do voting. So I became uh, the director of um, the chairperson of, of uh, TAM, uh, which is uh, a position uh, for three years, and uh, I won in the second round. So I am still the chairperson until uh, 2022. And uh, what we do is that we work with uh, changing the stereotype of Palestinian women in the media because most of the time, you always, if you see in the talk shows, you can have like one speaker that is female and another two or three are men talking about serious topics or what they consider serious topics. So for a long time, this is what we try to change the stereotypical image of Palestinian women because, as you know, Palestinian women are so strong. They've always been part of the political yeah, movement, sure. struggles, etc. And uh, another thing, we start working on social and economic rights, uh, empowering women, the, you know, like through working uh, with uh, certain women in urban areas about strengthening their ability to have their own projects. And many, many other things. We worked on law, and now we are running uh, with the Constitutional Service Center at Al-Najah, and uh, the Palestinian Women Union, which is part or belongs to uh, the PLO, uh, we are, uh, um, you know, running the constitutional awareness uh, campaign uh, for the whole Palestine, the West Bank and Gaza. Amazing. I think it's so important what it is that you're, you're doing there. And, and <laughs> long may it continue, the, this engagement and this effort to transform identities and perceptions of of women and Palestinian women in in media I think it's 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 so very important so I don't really understand Sana how it is that you manage to have time to do academic work in addition to your teaching in addition to your engagement your consultancy with um, with the constitutional court and and various other organizations but yet you do manage to do research and you've done some fascinating work on on not only the the basic law, which I'll ask you about in a minute, but also um, pertaining to, to sectarianism, and I'm really uh-huh. curious for for people to hear a bit more about how how your work helps us to understand sectarianism. But first, could you just tell us a bit about the work you've done with the basic law? Maybe just briefly, just tell us about mm-hmm. the Palestinian basic law and your your engagement with it, please. Um, well, uh, basically, I'm a I was appointed in 2019 as um, a member of the uh, small drafting committee by the Palestinian National Council. So this committee is not a constitutional assembly or... No, it's it's a committee of uh, nine uh, experts in constitutional law uh, that they can uh, look... Uh, so basically there was a draft uh, written and finished in 2016 and after the first constitutional awareness campaign that we we carried in 2018 2019 i was contacted in 2019 with um, you know by being appointed on this uh, small uh, expert drafting committee which is one uh, you know th- that belongs to a bigger um, constitutional committee that has to review the draft constitution so that's my interaction uh, with the current one i, I attended uh, most of the meetings 
and uh, to give uh, my opinion about the political system, uh, to give also my opinion about uh, how to, to have more uh, gender draft uh, or engendered um, constitution. And they were extremely nice to take on all the, the comments because at the end of the day, if this draft uh, sees the light, it has to go through referendum. Uh, for the basic law, uh, my interaction with it is uh, <laughs> basically I, I wrote about it a lot. And I think it was, you know, like it was good for a certain period of time as a transitional document. However, I think um, it causes more issues than it gives solutions. And that was very clear in 2006 when the political deadlock happened, yeah. you know, happened between Hamas and Fatah. So my interaction with the basic law is to write about how we can move from the basic law. Uh, to something that is more stable, to maybe another transitional uh, constitution. But this time, this transitional one has to be written, you know, and, and uh, in a way that Palestinian people feels it it's kind of representing them and it could give solution to this vogue area that we are in at the moment. Of course, not many people agree on this uh, solution, but we see how it goes. Uh, I have to highlight that I don't do consultation with the court. We do trainings. We provide them sometimes when we have, uh, uh, you know, such as the Constitution Awareness Campaign. We had uh, expert meetings with the court. So whenever, because I believe, you know, and this is another thing, that the court, having a constitutional court is very important. However, uh, sometimes uh, constitutional courts, when they are created, they are mostly uh, political. They, they follow the political system that created them. So what we can do is try to uh, to work together to have uh, this constitutional court as at its best, because it's going to stay, so why not to improve it? Sure. Um, for the sectarianism, uh, first of all, I have to say thank you, Simon, for introducing me to such topic because it's really it was not my area and it was not part of the things I was working on. And with the CBAD project, I definitely enjoyed looking at how constitutions can play a role in uh, divided societies. And I took the case of Lebanon and Bahrain, and mainly I focused on Bahrain um, to see how you can have a whole constitution that's putting one sect above the others. Mm. And how, actually, when you have this concentration of powers, you can never move to kind of, how to say, a proper constitutional identity. And that's one of the things that I have been exploring through CBAD, is the constitutional identity. What do you and mean by actually, that, Sana? I'm sorry for interrupting, but what do you mean no, by a constitutional no, it's identity? Uh, it's, it's kind of very fascinating because... I've realized that there are so much work that has been done about the constitutional identity, and at the same time, there is so much work to be done about it. Constitutional identity, until now, it's something that can be, you know, like uh, talked about from different angles. From the way I want to, to talk about it is, how can you feel that you belong to this constitution as, let's say, as a Bahraini, as Lebanese, as anybody in this, in, in a said country? And how the constitution should not look at the people as they are now, but what the, the constitution should also think of what this country aspires its people to be. So if you look at old constitutions, they never really considered that this country will not only be from white uh, middle-aged men. They never looked at, you know, like non-native people in it and how this this kind of like the articles will give them justice, etc., etc. So this is the part of the constitutional identity I'm working on. Okay. 
So how does that relate to sectarianism then? Because it's very related. Because of course, um, yeah. Because if you look, uh, if you look, uh, let's take uh, a constitution like Bahrain, right? Two thousand and two constitution. It's all about the king, the power of the king. Where is how can a Bahraini person that is not suddenly feels that he belongs to this constitution? This is actually this constitution that tries to build, um, you know, like a Bahrain uh, state that is for everyone. Maybe not, and that was very clear if we look at the, you know, at the powers that the king can delegate to to the people around him, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, these kind of, um, you know, these kind of issues will always be there as a reminder that you are, you know, not um, how to say, not, not the first class citizen. You'll always be second, third, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So you don't feel that this document that should, you know, that should be representing. What um, what uh, should be representing the how to say I, I don't want to look very classic in the way that I say it the social contract between you and your government is not anymore representing what it's not anymore representing you. So, so um, just just yeah. give us another example, Sana, if you can, please. I'm just I'm yeah. curious because um, you've got. I, I, I understand what you're saying, and having read your work, I, I see exactly what you're getting at here. But for those people who've not read what you're saying, uh, okay. can you just give us another example of how, say, a, a, a Shia Bahraini um, would feel perhaps not as included by this constitutional document? That, say, um, that uh, it's very, very plausible that that not all Bahrainis have read the constitutional document or are aware of what it says. So how does that directly relate to their feelings of belonging and collective identity? So technically, if you want to look at the constitution in a way where you have participatory constitution, a constitution that has transparency, a constitution, all these kind of like criteria that should be in the constitution. If we want to look at the 2002 constitution, which came after, you know, certain events, uh, the national uh, charter, etc., that uh, went into referendum. If you if you read it, if you if you look at, at this constitution at the beginning, it's not something that represents really the people's will, because they are not really the true owners of it. It's something that was somehow uh, given from the king to them right. at certain time, at certain period. So you're right. Maybe most of the people have not read it, but it is kind of what's governing them. It's kind of what gives the king his powers. Of course, many people now who are listening to us will be like, no, it's not what gives the king the power because it's basically the king enjoys the powers regardless. Yeah, but there were certain conversations about having a constitutional monarchy that is limited by this constitution, but it never happened. A better example, Simon, would be the Lebanese one. Remember when the protest uh, took place, when they were talking about uh, that they don't want sectarianism because they are, you cannot be a prime minister unless you are belonging to a certain sect, uh, unless you are Muslim Sunni, etc., etc. Yeah. And these things, these things, if you have them, because they are not written in, in, in the constitution, this is kind of like something they agreed on. You will always feel that you are trapped in certain arrangements that will never make you move forward. You will always know your place in your country that if you are born to this 
kind of sect, this is what you can get in your country. And that's because of the certain arrangements. That's because of the highest agreements that you have. So if people feel like this, first of all, they will lose trust in the highest arrangements that they created. And it should not be. Secondly, um, they will always feel, you know, that they don't belong. If you ask them what comes first, your sect or your, how to say, your country, or uh, if you're like Lebanese first or you belong to your sect. Of course, the formal answer we will always hear that I'm Lebanese first. But if you really think about it, belonging to the sect becomes the safer place for them. Becomes, you know, because they all know that we are equal in this, maybe not financially, but we always know that this is our place because of this um, arrangement. So these kind of things will always restrict people from moving forward. And this is where the constitutional, again, identity comes in, is that this constitution does not give us any hope of what we are aspiring to be. And this is why revolutions take place. This is why protests take place. Mm-hmm. Um, so at some, we can always, and, and this is one of the things I'm start working on. Can we really, do we have, to, maybe after Corona, we have to ask ourselves, do constitutions really matter? Are they a way, are they like ways to, to move forward, to have more, uh, how to say, arranged uh, societies, uh, democratic societies, or are they, especially in MENA regions, are they documents that are always used to kind of keep control mm-hmm. in different ways, keep control in one country by the governor or the ruler, keep control on certain, like, uh, sects uh, to be always above others. And this is, for me, from reading the constitutions in MENA regions, especially in sectarianism societies, they are always a way to divide the society, not to put them together. Sure. Uh, yeah, and and I think I think I hope that Tunisia, with the the 2014 constitution, found a way uh, to to different arrangements. But until now, I don't want to be like very you know positive about it because we haven't seen the actual. I know it was written in 2014 and got random, etc. But still, until now, we haven't had the real test of the Tunisian constitution. Um, so, so I will always, I'll try to be positive, but for me, as from, especially in sectarianism societies, constitutions become a divided tool, dividing tools. So it, it sounds like what you're getting at there is is there needs to be a conversation that takes place around the role of constitutions, not only in reinforcing divisions, but also in in addressing them, potentially moving towards ideas of desectarianization and things like that, which is obviously where where you've got such a key role to play in in SEPAD moving forward? Well, I, I do hope so. But again, as I always say, I'm not uh, Lebanese, I'm not Bahraini. I can always say or talk about theoretical aspects or what should be done. But I always think when we talk about constitutions in particular, this conversation should come from the people. Sure. should be like from what they really want to do. If you want to take this example in Palestine now, most of like the problems, and I think this is one of the areas we are trying to explore together, Simon, which is political sectarianism, how you become devoted or feeling the belonging to, to one um, uh, you know, party, political party, etc., etc. And that was very clear in, in the way when we had 2006, when the president could not work with the prime minister or the prime minister could not work with the president yeah. because they belong to do uh, different political parties. So the basic law was from the way it arranged or divided the rules between the president and the prime minister. And that was because of the international pressure at the time. 
it's the reason, you know, it's one of the reasons, the, the, the basic law at the time was one of the reasons for creating what I, what I'm trying to explore at the moment is the political sectarianism. But again, I really think when we talk about constitutions, it's something, the desire to change them or to have a new arrangements in them should come from the people. But in order to for these things to come from the people, and again, I go back to what you said, most maybe most of the people have never read their own constitutions because they don't think that it affects them or it's, it's something that they don't want to talk about. This is where uh, constitutional awareness campaigns from political parties, from youth organizations, from NGOs are so important and also from schools and universities because you really need to educate or not educate, not the right word, to, to spread this kind of like awareness culture. Yeah. So everybody can be engaged and talk about these things. Of course. Sana, it's been absolutely fascinating talking with you. It's so inspiring, as always, to, to hear you talking about all these things and not thank only talking, but, but doing the things that you identify is, is so very important. So thank you so much for sharing them with uh, with us today. Um, I'm conscious that that you have places to be given your, your incredibly busy schedule. So thank you so much for giving <laughs> us your time today. It's been absolutely wonderful. No, thank you very much, Simon, and uh, also thank you for the work of uh, CBAT, and uh, I'm very honored to be part of this amazing team, and of course, uh, keeping, uh, the, you know, like all the amazing things that you're doing and being part of, of uh, your project uh, on these things, and I really would like to thank you also for our work together on uh, Agambion. That's another talk for another day. That's but another day. <laughs> it was very, yeah, but it was very inspiring to, to see how a uh, state of exceptions uh, or state of exception can work from a political uh, science point of view and uh, how it can be applied uh, to the work in MENA region. Uh, your work is really fascinating on this and I hope we can keep exploring this, uh, this concept uh, in the future work that we do as well. You're very kind, Sana, as always. But thank you so much. It's been a pleasure talking with you and... Um, I wish you all the best with it all. As always, thank you. thank you so much for listening. Until next time.